This passage from 1 Samuel that you heard Carol read marks a major shift in the history of Israel, a shift from the time of the judges to now the time of the kings, the time of a theocracy, a people under God's leadership, a government under God, if you will, to a monarchy, a government under human leaders. We're taking a quick fly-by view over all of Scripture. As you know, we're journeying through God's Word. We started in Genesis, we'll end in Revelation, and we're taking a few high points along the way. Today we come to First and Second Samuel. Well, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings tell one continuously long story. Back in the day, it was one continuously very, very, very long scroll. But when we put our Bibles together, they were divided into 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. And basically, it's the story of the rise of the monarchy, the rise of the kings ruling over Israel. And then when the kingdom divides Israel and Judah. The two books of Samuel bear the name of the last judge and the first prophet of Israel, Samuel whose name means God has heard. Well, let's take a quick peek at the background of this passage and think about the book of Judges. The 12 judges of the book of Judges, and now we have here in 1 Samuel, Eli and Samuel. These judges were the civil, religious, and military leaders overseeing Israel's somewhat scattered and somewhat separated tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. During the, tw during the time of the judges, we see a cycle that repeats itself over and over and over again. Listen to what happens. The people fall into idolatry. They start worshiping false gods. Two, they find themselves in bondage now of their enemies. Three, they, in desperation, they cry out to God for deliverance. Four, God raises up a leader to come to their aid. Five, Israel is delivered from their oppressors. Six, they enjoy a time of peace and prosperity that follows and then eh, repeat. Hit the repeat button over and over and over again. Now, before we start to feel too badly about the Israelites, maybe we could and should see ourselves in this story. I'm not sure about your story, but I know in my own life there's peaks and there's valleys. There's good times and there's hard times. And I have found in my own story of faith, in my own journey of faith, in those hard times when circumstances are such that I'm going through a very difficult time, I find myself like the children of Israel, crying out to God for deliverance. And then, interestingly enough, when I cry out that prayer, God, please, I need you to help me in this situation. I find a closeness to God that maybe I hadn't seen or felt before. It's as if God says, oh, good, Mark. That's the prayer I've been wanting you to pray. Now I can do something with you and for you. 
And I find myself in a period of closeness to God. And it's rich and it's wonderful. Maybe God answers the prayer and takes away the problem or the concern that I had. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he just fortifies me to get through that time. Lots of times that's how he answers the prayer. Helps fortify me through that time. But then after a while, this is my story, after a while, when things are rocking along pretty good, things are going well, things are just, you know, kind of nice and uh, smooth sailing, I get to thinking a little bit like, yeah, I can handle this. Yeah, I can do this on my own. And sometimes my closeness to God, my spirituality begins to drift begins to languish, begins to not be as intense as it was before. Maybe when we see the children of Israel going through that cycle that we see in the book of Judges, maybe we should understand and see ourselves in that mirror and understand that that can be our story too. Maybe we should learn. Well, in our passage today, we're going to see that the people rejected God. They rejected God's servant. They rejected God's counsel. They rejected God's warning. That's a lot of rejecting going on, isn't it? They demanded their own way. They wanted to be like the other nations around them. They didn't trust God's timing, God's counsel, or God's plan. I want us to ask ourselves two questions this morning. What does this passage tell us about human nature? And two, as followers of Christ, what does this passage reveal to us about God and our walk of faith? So why were the people asking for a king? Number one, Samuel was old. I'm beginning to think that may be why David asked me to preach this sermon. Samuel was old, and you saw that he had named his two sons to be the leaders or the judges or the administrators over the people of Israel, but they were scoundrels. They were corrupt. They were greedy for gain. They took bribes. They were unjust in their political decisions. Two, these 12 tribes, as we've already mentioned, these 12 tribes of Israel were under constant threat from the people groups around them, from the nations and people groups around them, particularly the Philistines. And they were so loosely organized. Everybody was very much um, committed to their own clan, to their own family unit. But there were some alliances between some, but they just basically were a little scattered. It was a little muddy how they got along with each other. They felt like a king would unify them and bring them together. It's not a bad idea, of course. And we find from a close study of Scripture that God did have in mind for his people to have a king at some point. Going way back to even the book of Deuteronomy, we see that God was talking about them them having a king at some point in their future. The problem here is they are reaching out for a king on their own terms and on their own timing and not waiting on God to take care of that need. But three, and this is mentioned twice in the chapter we're looking at today, one of the main reasons they were asking for a king was because 
Everybody else has one. They wanted to be like everybody else around them. The other nations have a king. Why can't we? Their look was in the wrong direction. Their look was to those around them and not to God. How many times do we get in trouble by our look being out there to those that are spiritually indifferent and trying to pattern our lives after them like we heard in Psalm 1 and not according to the way God wants us to live. In asking for a king, they were in essence rejecting God as their king. They were putting their trust in human leaders and in the institution of the monarchy and the dynasty to follow even though it was God and God's strength that had brought them out of Egypt, had sustained them in the wilderness, and now is bringing them to the promised land, even though it was God who had done all of this for them, they were turning their back and rejecting God and asking for a human king to be their leader. Well, Samuel, the judge Samuel, was quite disheartened by this request. He feels rejected and dejected, and rightly so. Samuel loved the people of God, and he loved the Lord, and he had done what was right in the sight of the Lord. But the people were not satisfied. They wanted something more. They wanted an earthly king to rule over them. Have you ever given yourself wholeheartedly to a cause or a relationship, or a project, or an event. You gave it your all. You gave 100%. And then those around you just kind of didn't seem to notice or care, or especially didn't seem to express any kind of appreciation to, to you for all that you had done. Maybe you get a sense of what Samuel felt like here. He had given himself wholeheartedly to the people, and they are basically rejecting him and God together. But God assures Samuel that it is him, Yahweh, God, that they are rejecting and not Samuel. God basically says, it's me, not you. So God allows them to have a king. But this is very interesting. But through Samuel, God wants to give a warning to the people about what this king will bring. I want us to listen to this. I'm beginning at verse 10, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 10. And I want us to hear all of the verbs in this passage. When Shelley Woodruff preaches, lots of times she talks to us about the verbs. I want us to see and hear these verbs in this passage. Six times in these verses, you're going to hear the word take. And it's just kind of grabbing and taking Verse 10, so Samuel reported all these words to the Lord and to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. This king's going to set up a military draft. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. He's going to be the brigadier general in charge. 
And he will appoint some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment for his chariots. He's going to conscript some into the service of the agricultural needs of the people and also making these instruments, these weapons of war. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. These young women will be conscripted into doing the domestic chores for the aid of the king. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. The best of your produce he's going to take and he's going to share with himself and with those closest supporters to him. He's going to throw a banquet at your expense. He will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers. This is a tax, if you will, over and above the tithe that they're already paying. He will take your male and female slaves and get this last one. He will take the best of your cattle and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. You won't have much you can do about it. In short, this king will be a tyrant. He'll rule with a heavy fist. He'll have no regard for what his self-absorbed ways are doing and how they are affecting the people. He's only looking out for himself and his closest supporters. And worst of all, he may put himself up equal to God. This king is not going to be all that you want him to be. Listen at verse 18, and I think this is a very sad and sobering verse. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. Hmm. Have you ever heard phrases like, don't ever say I didn't tell you so. Or what about this one? Be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. Hmm. And history proves God correct here. Over the next several hundred years, there would be a numerous kings that would rule over God's people, over Israel and over the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah, and only a handful of them, according to the witness of Scripture, only a handful of them would be what we would call good kings. Sure, David comes to mind as a good king. Now, David did have his struggles. He did have his weaknesses. He did have his problems. He was not perfect. But he was a man after God's own heart, and he ruled well, and the nation prospered under David's leadership. But what about Solomon, David's own son? It's kind of a mixed bag. Yes, he built the temple, but he taxed the people very heavily. He was author or part author of three books in our Bible. That's wonderful. He was considered the wisest man on earth. Although I have sometimes thought he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's an awful lot of mother-in-laws. Just don't know how wise that is. 
Late in his life, Solomon began to let some of these wives influence him in ways to worship at false gods. And he even let them build altars. And he even himself worshiped at altars of false gods. He drifted away from what God would want. So with Solomon, we would have to say a mixed review at best. There were some good kings, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jotham, Hezekiah, and Josiah. These were kings who walked in the ways of the Lord and served with justice and honor. But I think I counted well over 30. I think it was 33 kings that are listed in the books of 1 and 2 Kings as we follow that narrative of Israel. And they get this word written about them toward the end of the paragraph or two or three or page or two or three where it talks about their rule. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and caused God's people, Israel or Judah, to sin. How would you like for that to be your legacy written down for all time? Over 30, 33 or so of these kings turned out to be bad just as God had predicted. Well, let's see the rest of the story, starting at verse 19. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but we are determined to have a king over us so that we also may be, here it is again, like the other nations. And that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them to the ears of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and set a king over them. Samuel then said to the people of Israel, each of you return home. So where in essence had they gone wrong? They had rejected God. They had rejected God's counsel. They had rejected God's servant. They had demanded their own way. They wanted to be like the other nations around them. Their view was in the wrong direction. They had their eyes on others around them instead of on God. In just a couple of months, we're going to have Christmas on Claremont here again. It's wonderful. And this year, it's going to be keyboards and carols. Daniel Solberg is helping get that together. And there's going to be four grand pianos up here, plus organ. It's going to be pretty magnificent. But here's the question. How do you get four grand pianos to be in tune with each other? You tune them to a separate standard out here that is over and above all of them. You tune them to A440. 440 revolutions per second gives you A5 or A above middle C. You tune each of them to that standard of A440. Then they will play perfectly in tune with each other. If you try to tune them to each other, it's going to be a mess. You tune them to that standard. So that's what God wants us to tune ourselves to his standard. And the people didn't want to do that. They wanted to tune themselves to those around them. They didn't trust God's timing. They didn't trust God's counsel. They didn't trust God's plan. 
So back to our first questions. What does this tell us about human nature? We're too easily influenced by those who have no regard for God in matters of faith. Cindy read beautifully for us a little while ago from Psalm 1. And I want to read a paraphrase of Psalm 1 from a book I came across years ago called Psalms Now by Leslie Brandt. And these are modern vernacular paraphrases of the Psalms. And here's how Leslie Brandt wrote Psalm 1. Listen at these words. When I first heard these words, they have stuck with me through all these years. The one who chooses to live a significant life is not going to take their cues from the religiously indifferent. Nor will they conform to the crowd, nor spout their prejudices, nor dote on the failures of others. Their ultimate concern is the will of God, and they make decisions in respect to such. They're not going to take their cues from the religiously indifferent. People of Israel were doing that. Human nature is very easy for us to be influenced by those around us instead of being influenced by God. We want what we want because someone else has it already. And in that statement, you hear echoes of greed, echoes of envy, echoes of jealousy, echoes of lust, echoes of covetousness. So many of our sins, so many of the places where we miss the mark, where we fall short of the glory of God, is in trying to grab these things for ourselves and not trusting God or waiting on God to supply those needs, those desires, those wants in his way, in his timing, according to his plan, which is so much better. We all too easily make decisions based on our wants and desires and not on what God wants and desires for us. When we demand our own way, we reject God's counsel and consequences follow. Let me take a little side trip here and talk about God's moral law. The law had been given in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments, and of course it had been expounded upon throughout the book of Leviticus, etc. These moral laws of God are not arbitrary. They're not a made-up list of rules designed to thwart or diminish our enjoyment of life and our fulfillment in our relationships in life. Quite the opposite. I like to say that these laws are revelations from God to letting us know how things are supposed to work according to his creation how things are supposed to work in our relationships, how things are supposed to function. They operate the same as the laws of nature. The laws of nature are pretty firm and straightforward, and we get it. If I were to climb to the top of a 10-story building and jump, I would not break the law of gravity. I would demonstrate it. If we were to gather in a ballroom somewhere on the 30th floor of a high-rise building in downtown Atlanta, and this high-rise building had a beautiful uh, row of 
glass doors looking west, and we saw that there was a beautiful sunset out there. And now we're on the 30th floor, and outside these sliding glass doors was a platform, but no railing, no wall around it. How many of us would be brave enough to go out there on that platform, 30 floors up, to fully enjoy that sunset. Maybe a few would go a step or two out. A few others might crawl to the edge and peek over. God's laws are like that fence, that border around that patio, around that platform, so that we can go out and fully enjoy that sunset. God's moral laws are just like his physical laws. We don't break them, we break ourselves upon them. Someone or something is going to be hurt, broken, or diminished when we break God's laws. So our second question, what does this passage reveal to us about God and our walk of faith? God is to be our true leader of the people of faith. God will have no other gods before him. So many times... So many times when the people drift, it's in idolatry. It's in the worship of false gods. I think, I don't want to weigh the laws of God one heavier than the other, but this one seems to make God the most angry, and maybe rightly so. You shall have no other gods before me. God has a plan, and when we deviate from that plan, consequences follow. God sees the big picture, and we need to trust God, trust his lead, trust his counsel, trust his direction, because he sees the big picture. I got a snapshot of this several years ago. Cindy's father was a captain with Eastern Airlines, and he also had a private aircraft, a Cessna 172. Some of you may or may not know a Cessna 172 is a single-engine aircraft where the wings are on top of the fuselage. So when you sit in the cabin of that airplane, you can look out in all directions and have great view of what's below you. Well, I flew with Howard several times, Howard Gilbert, Cindy's father. I flew with him several times on some long cross-country trips from North Georgia all the way to North Florida where they lived in Chipley. And I remember one time we were probably out over eastern part of Alabama and I looked down and there was this winding, snaking road below us. And from my vantage point, I was probably seeing a mile or maybe even a little bit over a mile of this road in front of me. And I noticed over here a transfer truck heading south. And way over here I noticed... Of all things, a Volkswagen Beetle, a red Volkswagen Beetle heading north. They had no knowledge of each other. They couldn't have. But yet here they were heading in the direction of each other. And after about a minute, they passed each other. And I got this interesting sensation. Maybe that's how God knows everything. He sees everything all at once. He's not limited in linear ways like we are. He sees time and eternity all at once, and he knows all. We need to trust him. If he knows all, we need to trust him and follow his lead and his direction. The people had rejected God 
The lesson for us as people of faith and followers of Christ, we seek God. The people had rejected God's servant. Our lesson is as people of faith and followers of Christ, we are to listen to and respect God's servants. The people rejected God's counsel. Our lesson today as people of faith and followers of Christ, we are to obey God's counsel. The people rejected God's warning. Our lesson once warned as people of faith and followers of Christ, we are willing to change course. The people got what they demanded, but they got the consequences as well. Our lesson, God gives us the right to choose, but we don't have the right to choose the consequences of our choices. As people of faith and followers of Christ, we trust God and we commit ourselves to God's ways. They wanted to be like the other nations around them as people of faith and followers of Christ. We want to grow in Christ-likeness. They didn't trust God's counsel, God's timing, God's plan. As people of faith, we look to God to be the author and finisher of our faith and seek to do his will. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us heed the counsel of our Lord and renew our vow to walk in God's ways. Our lives, our relationships, and our world will be so blessed when we do. May it be so. Thanks be to God. Amen.